When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined today via Google Hangout by my fearless co-host and our chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, how you holding up? Oh, just making my way the only way I know how, Leslie. How about you? We are about a week into our uh, work from home scenario. I'm on season two of, of 30 Rock, which I have admittedly never seen before. And yeah, uh, I'm, I'm a little stir crazy. I'm ready to go outside. I'm ready to like do something that involves culture, but you can't do that because everything shut down. We are definitely living in unusual times and we are practicing our social distancing even on this podcast. So hopefully you won't notice the audio difference. But if you do, you have the explanation for what up. Yeah. And, you know, because so much of the town is shut down and this global pandemic is affecting everything, every facet of the industry, every facet of our, our world as we know it. This episode will be a little bit different than our usual structure. First, of course, there is no headline segment this week. Obviously, you know, v stars announced that Vita is going to end with its uh, previously announced third season. But there's really no news on the development side or series pickups or cancellations or castings. Everything is, has stopped largely. And you will be shocked to discover that COVID-19 is our number one story of the week, probably our number two story of the week, maybe our number three story of the week. Uh, but for future reference, we are definitely going to be needing some mailbag questions for future podcasts. And as you may have heard me mention previously, you can reach us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. We would love to hear all of your questions, particularly if they're lighthearted and and friendly, because heaven knows uh, there's enough darkness. Yeah. And if you have a, a fun story to, to share about how TV is getting you through the, the quarantine and helping with anxiety, please send it. I'm happy to read off a couple of those, too, because we could all, as Dan said, use some good news. Well, with that in mind, I think uh, let's let's get right into it. Huh, Dan? Absolutely. Number one. Our first topic this week, as I've already spoiled, is, of course, the impact of the coronavirus on the television landscape, the entertainment industry and all of our day to day lives. Uh, as I have mentioned to several people before, basically, the entire world seems to be sitting on their couches watching TV, which means that the entire world has become television critics. So I'm sorry, all of you. It's not as glamorous as you thought it would be. If you are paying attention to THR.com, as you most certainly should be, you've probably seen Leslie's wonderful Q&A on all things coronavirus and how it's impacting 
everything. Uh, as we record this, the CDC recommendation is to limit gatherings to 50 people or less for the next eight weeks, which is a long time. Uh, should the industry adhere to that and our global situation improves, that could mean a resumption of production in May around the upfronts, which will no longer happen. So, Leslie, where do you want to start our discussion about basically how things are being impacted other than the basic answer, everything's shut down and that's where we are? Well, I think that's a good place to start is, yes, everything is shut down. But in my reporting, two types of different shutdowns have emerged. First, the real shutdown where people are being sent home. And that's really the end of production where sets are being taken down and stored, etc. And basically the end of the season is abrupt and it just ends. And then there's a hiatus, meaning production is hope hopefully will hopefully resume at some point when it is safe. A lot of the real shutdowns are are affecting broadcast shows, which were already in the typical March window, shutting down or or near wrapping production and finishing seasons. Some shows like Grey's Anatomy they were on episode twenty one and of 25. And it's unclear what's going to happen with those remaining episodes. I think they are one of a handful of shows that are hoping to kind of come back up. The big priority on that side is really shows like Supernatural that were coming to an end of its series. And it's very important to film a series finale. Other shows have have already wrapped production. Modern Family got its final season in Under the Wire. Um, A Million Little Things, the same, uh, the same is true, Blackish. But it's very hard to kind of keep track of everything that's being shut down and what's going to come back and what won't like Superstore America Ferrara's last episode won't be produced. So that puts the onus on NBC and on her to come back and find a way to wrap that story next season, because that's a show that is lucky enough to know that it is coming back. And I think that also kind of leads us into, well, what's coming back? Um, you know, the upfronts, you know, you mentioned that they are not going to happen. Well, they're every basically the live presentations have all been scrapped, as has any kind of gathering that involves a mass amount of people. As we record this, the Cannes Film Festival, which is the cornerstone of the film calendar, was just postponed. So as for upfronts, I think you're going to see digital presentations. And everything that I'm hearing is a lot of bubble shows will have the advantage in coming back because it's a known entity. These networks and studios have already spent millions of dollars promoting it. You've already built sets. You already largely have crews and writing staffs. But yeah, and then that's this is just the tip of the iceberg, Dan. Yeah, I'm actually kind of amazed that can held out on its delay as long as they did. I I mean, that's a festival that was going to be in May, and that's not... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Nothing is happening in May. I, th- I think we can safely guarantee that we knew that anyway. Yeah. It's, uh, so where does this stand? Where does this put anything in terms of pilots? Like where had some pilots actually finished production? Had many just not started at all? I know we were still in the earliest casting stages, but it's all strange. <laughs> yeah. It, it, pilot season is a complete disaster right now. So 60 dramas and comedies were picked up. Of those, I'm told one, just let that sink in, one, Be Positive, the Chuck Lorre CBS comedy, was able to finish production. Everything else either hadn't started up yet or started but didn't didn't finish. And pilot season is probably the biggest impact right now on the TV side because how do you sell an upfront calendar or an upfront schedule to Madison Avenue ad buyers, which make no mistake for our, our listeners who are not familiar with that process. That's where these broadcast networks pull in north of $6 billion in advertising revenue during the, the upfront presentations. 
So how do you as a network present a schedule with new and returning shows when you don't have footage of new shows or actual completed episodes of new shows from which to judge series pickups? So one of the things that I'm hearing is that these pilots, that these networks could look at at what they have already on paper, whether it's the script that, that was able to land the pilot order, how the casting came together, the strength of the auspices, and make a decision and say, okay, well, Rebel, for example, with is from Krista Vernoff. It's a high priority for ABC because they need something for Thursday nights to go on after Grey's and Station 19, both of which have already been renewed. That seems like a night where you make it all about Krista and a kind of TGIT type thing. And it's Katie Seagal, Andy, Andy Garcia. They haven't filmed anything yet, but based on the strength of that, they could hand out a series order and say, or, and, or to say to Krista and say, open up a writer's room, start working on episodes two, three, and however many more. And that way, when, when production is given the green light to go ahead and resume, they can hit the ground running. Most TV shows, returning TV shows specifically, don't resume production until after the 4th of July holiday. Pilots usually are shooting right now, March into April. Then they've got a couple of weeks to do post and VFX. The networks make the decisions in the, you know, at, at the end of the middle to the end of May, right around upfronts. And then they resume production in, in June and July. So if you're down through at least May, what you could see, and again, this is all hypothetical. No one knows how long this shutdown is going to last. What you could see if we had used the CDC recommendations of being of avoiding groups of 50 or more for eight weeks, you could see production possibly resume at the end of May. Pilots could could hit the ground running. But this also means that the fall launch, the, t the typical third week of September fall premiere week, as it's been dubbed, could see just returning shows only and new shows coming later, kind of what the CW does, where they sit out premiere week and they don't premiere until October. So maybe you have new shows premiering in October. However, if this production shutdown continues far beyond May, A, the state of the world is going to be a bigger problem than when new and returning shows can launch. And B, you could see fall premiere week or the fall schedule really shift. I've had a couple of people say, you know, December or January could be the new fall, could be the new September. So that would mean... I'm going down a very bad rabbit hole here, um, <laughs> but that could mean that the fewer shows get picked up to series and returning shows produce fewer episodes, which is going to have a, a massive financial impact on everything. Ad buys, writers who are being paid, production, below the line people. We ran a story yesterday that an estimated 120,000 crew members have already lost their jobs amid the coronavirus production shutdown. That's jarring. This is a, an industry that is very much in flux and in and possibly in a lot of trouble. Yeah, I, I've seen on Twitter occasional snarky people uh, and I'm an occasionally snarky person on Twitter, so I understand. Occasionally, Dan? Uh, here and there. Being Said with all, love. <laughs> uh, be, being all um, you know, why do I care about Hollywood? Why do I care about what's happening to movie stars or TV stars? And certainly we've seen that given free time celebrities like Vanessa Hudgens are are prone to getting into trouble and saying stupid things which don't help anybody's cause but the thing that people do need to remember is that yes there are the A-list actors who are making x number hundreds of thousands of dollars per episode but there are as Leslie just said hundreds of thousands of people who 
do this as their workaday jobs. It is the thing they do to pay for their homes for food, and they are not making hundreds of thousands of dollars per episode. They're workers, and they are being impacted in the same way that workers across the country in all industries are. That's my only point, not to say that Hollywood is in any way different or more seriously hit by this. It's just important to remember that every industry has workers and they're being impacted in all cases. It just happens that we are a TV podcast. And so we're going to be talking about something that is somewhat on the frivolous spectrum, but it's not frivolous if it's the thing that you do for a living. And so it's important to keep in mind. And and just on that note, make no mistake that, you know, the television production is a massive part of California's revenue and economy. When our industry is in trouble, California is in trouble. So and when, Calif- and when California is in trouble, it should be noted the United States of America is in trouble and so on and so on. I mean, I mean, we it- are teetering on the edge of a recession. That is the bigger among the bigger issues, and there is a global pandemic. People are dying. Yes, we have our priorities in order, but we again, we are a TV podcast, so this is going to be analysis of this corner of the pandemic. Let's you know, look. We've talked about how this is a, a major, major problem here. Let's talk about some of the good things that are happening as part of this. So, a lot of writers' rooms are still up and running and writing episodes that they hope to film at a later date. A lot of them are have gone virtual and using apps like Zoom. Like we mentioned, we are using Google Hangouts right now to have some degree of success. We've seen multiple organizations launch fundraisers to help support staff and below-the-line people and crew who have been impacted by these shutdowns. Top producers like Greg Berlanti and Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy are all matching contributions to stuff through Pay Up Hollywood and different relief funds. Uh, The Rosie O'Donnell show is returning for a one night only benefit for the Actors Fund. Medical shows like The Good Doctor and Grey's Anatomy and Station 19 are donating extra medical supplies to their local hospitals. There's a lot of good that's actually happening here as as everyone in our community is rallying um, to support the people who have been affected by this. You know, the other thing that we're going to continue to monitor is we, we still have original program that is that is currently airing. There has only been one real show that has had its premiere date changed, and that's FX's Fargo, um, which backed off of its April date because only eight of its 10 episodes have been produced. We'll continue to monitor that. But yeah, I mean, right now it's basically a good time to to be home with your family and friends. And if you struggle with anxiety, which is something that I think a lot of us are struggling with if, um, on top of everything else, it's a good time to FaceTime the people that you love and care and check in and, and make sure that you have the kind of social interaction that you need and find things that, that make you feel good. And for me, it's, you know, I'm enjoying wearing tracksuits to quote unquote work every day. Uh, that's a thing that I'm having fun with. Um, you gotta, you gotta find the things that make you happy. And even if that's, you know, especially if that's finding a good TV show to binge and watch, Dan. Way to look on the bright side of life, Leslie. That is probably the best message we can have. No, every, everyone look out for each other. Everyone be careful with each other. Everyone be in touch with loved ones who are more and less vulnerable and everyone wear tracksuits to work. Don't hoard stuff. If you know you have a friend, an, an elderly neighbor, check in on them. Maybe slide a note under the door. I'm seeing a lot of uh, people in my feed doing that. But yeah, um, yes, the industry is kind of doom and gloom right now, as is the rest of the country and the world to a certain extent. But let's let's talk about one of the cool things that we've seen happen on late night for our second topic. Number two. So up next, you know, 
a lot of the late night shows, none of them are filming new episodes, but what they are doing is finding creative ways to spruce up repeats and stay relevant in this time when everyone is basically in upping the number, the amount of time that they're spending watching television and, and, and streaming. None of the late night shows are currently filming new episodes, but folks like Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, they're all finding ways to address the current global pandemic with short segments that are being tacked on to repeats. Um, Stephen Colbert filmed something from his bathtub. Conan announced uh, this week that he's re returning, albeit remotely, on March 30th. But Dan, what have you seen and what's impressed you so far about what all the late night crew are doing? I, I thought all of last week's programming in late night where people were basically <laughs> getting getting out of their last week of shooting things in any way they could. I thought a lot of that was very interesting. I thought Stephen Colbert playing in front of the empty house where he had a very big empty audience or largely empty audience. He was very good. I thought that Samantha B was interesting in her approach. Basically, she put her writers in the audience and to add a little bit of spontaneity to the show, she got them to insert jokes into her monologue that she hadn't seen previously. And so there were several different points where you could tell her that she was cracking up because she hadn't seen a joke before and she was basically losing it on air. And that, you know, these are these are sort of human moments within the unpleasantness. Some of the late night hosts who have smaller show audiences were able to basically kind of fill the space to some degree within social uh, distancing guidelines. So you had something like Jesus and Mero, who, you know, they're in a very, very small venue to begin with. It, it did not feel as evacuated. I'm not sure also that they seemed all that comfortable. But then you also, as the alternative, you had what John Oliver did on Sunday, which was a show dedicated entirely to coronavirus and to where we stand at the moment which was filmed in some people have described it as the matrix. Some people have described it as the white void. Some people have described it as where you go on a TV show or movie when you die and you're in heaven. In any case, it was a very bright white space and he was doing his monologue with no laughter or response at all. And it was eerie, but it was eerie in probably the way that some of us needed because it was sort of disarming and, and human. And it was what we're all trying to do is find our ways to continue on in these uncertain times. And this week, the little bumper segments that people have been recording ahead of repeats, basically, I'm not sure it's been great TV or anything. So David Spade recording his four minute monologue in his basement. OK, whatever. Uh, Samantha B recorded an introduction to a repeat from a woodshed in the backyard, Stephen Colbert from the bathtub, et cetera, et cetera. But everyone's just trying to figure things out. I will be very interested to see what Conan looks like when it returns in whatever form it is that it's going to be returning, because Conan has really very consistently been good at basically finding new ways to adapt to the landscape. This has been something he's been spectacular at in the TBS incarnation of his show, whether it's just shortening the show and concentrating on more digital material or the travel segments, etc. So if anyone is going to figure out how to do something fresh and vaguely relevant, I think it's going to be 
him. I, I think that sort of as, lo- as long as we're talking about the late night shows, it'd be worth mentioning what ESPN has been doing lately. And ESPN has basically become the NFL free se- uh, preseason and NFL free agency network, which has been interesting. It's basically been all Tom Brady all the time, which for some of me has been very upsetting. Uh, yeah, it's, and- a dump- it's a little blow to you on top of everything else. It, it, I'm I'm glad that I've had other things to concentrate on rather than Tom Brady of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But still, it's mm-hmm. been interesting to see because like the first couple days, ESPN was like, yeah, we have no clue what to do. And they were airing 30 for 30 marathons. They were airing old games, et cetera, et cetera. This week, at least they've been able to fill the space with NFL free um, free agency. So there's been that. But that's not going to last forever. Uh the NFL is still claiming they're having their draft. That'll give them something to cover. But yeah, it's it's been strange. I just moved and we got Spectrum finally so I could watch Dodger baseball. And of course, there's no baseball. So my happy place has been watching old the old games that Spectrum has been broadcasting. So they're doing a whole Clayton Kershaw marathon today for his birthday. And the other night, um, I watched two hours of a game from the 90s with Eric Carros and Mike Piazza. Mostly just to hear Vin Scully tell stories for two hours. It was um, it was a great, great distraction. But um, yeah, it's definitely interesting watching some of these live network, these networks that rely so much on, on live programming and, and things that are have been completely shut down, struggle and find varying degrees of success to, to, as ways to continue on. As we talk about things that have been shut down, I think for our next topic, we're staying on on the coronavirus beat. And let's take a look at how everything that's happening in our world is impacting streamers. Number three. Up third, the big streamers have yet to pull back on any of their previously announced premiere dates. In addition to that, Disney Plus made Frozen 2 available for streaming months ahead of time. And with movie theaters closed across the country, Universal is releasing current feature films on its VOD platforms. Stuff like The Invisible Man, The Hunt, and eventually Trolls 2 will all be available for a $20 rental fee for over a 48-hour period. Meanwhile, the big question in our world is what Universal's forthcoming streamer Peacock and what's going to happen with HBO Max from Warner Media if those two are still on track for their debuts in April and May, respectively. This week, we saw HBO Max hit pause on production for its Friends reunion special. They were poised to, to record that over uh, two days at the end of the month. That is now moved to what sources say is at least May, which we talked about in our first segment as being at least if you adhere to the CDC recommendations, that's when things hopefully will be up and running and the the rule of 50 possibly lifted. But that May date is especially interesting because you definitely need a big tentpole event to launch a streaming service with. And this is what they were planning on using the Friends reunion for. Peacock, meanwhile, is in a different boat where they were going to do a soft launch April 15th to Comcast subscribers um, and then they're and launch nationally July 15th pegged to the Olympics. However, the Olympics right now are a big question mark right now. Nothing has been decided as we record this about if they're going to be canceled or postponed or what's going on. But we know that a lot of qualifying events have been canceled or postponed. So how how you have an Olympic Games with that many people from all over the world in this kind of environment Unless things rapidly improve, I don't know how that's going to happen, Dan. And that would massively impact Peacock. It would massively impact the world. Uh, the world. But but it would definitely impact Peacock. It would definitely impact NBC, which obviously, as everyone knows, pays a tremendous amount of money for 
the Olympic Games, but in and they've general, already sold one point. Oh, I think it was over one point two billion dollars in ads, which yeah, is an, an Olympic record. That is a lot of make goods that they would have to deal with. But fortunately, that's not our business. Uh, yeah. So there are those two services. I think the one that I've been most curious about is the one that's actually premiering before those two. Uh, our good friend Quibi, uh, where our Quibi. good friend Quibi, uh, where they're scheduled to premiere on April 6th, and that's fine and well. But the entire gimmick of that service was here are quick bites, as it were, to watch as you're commuting to work, as you're waiting for a meeting to happen. Basically, all of the ordinary things that people do in their lives they that no one built, is doing that no one is doing. So they built these programming blocks in quick bites, whereas at this point, people aren't looking for quick bites anymore. They're perhaps looking for large binges. So the entire model for what it is that Quibi was based on Quibi. is based is based on something <laughs> that is not necessarily functional. That being said, they've got a lot of programming that they already filmed. So that's a fairly large advantage that they have, that they have all of this programming that is prepared to debut. So that's a positive. But then it's on the basically negative like, side, like hour or hour and a half or two hour long movies that are going to be broken up into tiny little bitlets. So so that will still be good. But on the other hand, the other thing that they were going to do was daily live programming or daily news and informational programming. And I don't know how they are designed to film that or distribute that if people can't get together and actually film things. But I don't know what their plans are there. So but it, look, if a late night host can record a five minute segment from their bathtub, I, I would think that Quibi, especially in this climate, could find a way to make those daily news bites work. I think they could. Just the thing is, I watch the late night hosts do their thing because of all of the emotional capital that they've built up for me. I know that I want to watch those people because I care what they have to say and I'm used to the traditional format in which they say it and therefore I'm curious how they're going to deviate from that format. Whereas if Quibi is launching with a new, form <laughs> with a new formula that <laughs> We don't really know what it feels like. Am I going to watch to see what the deviation is? And if they're going to be rolling out with sort of cheap ass knockoffs of what they eventually plan to do, is that actually good for the brand that they're trying to build? I think there are a lot of these kind of big questions. And once again, I feel like we need to say we understand these are not actually big questions on a global scale. These are little, little, little questions on a global scale. But they're the things that impact the industry that we cover. And so they're the things we have to fixate on at this point. Yeah. Well, that feels like we've said all we need to say about the streamers and what we know so far. Yes, obviously, people have been a lot of these productions have been for streamers have been shut down. Lord of the Rings is among them. Stranger Things at Netflix. It's a fluid situation. We'll continue to cover and monitor this beat as well as everything else um, as coronavirus impacts our landscape. Moving on. Up next is this week's showrunner spotlight, and we should remind our listeners here that this interview was recorded in late February before our world changed. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number four. Our guest in this week's showrunner spotlight cut her teeth on Dawson's Creek and writing on shows including Stick It, Brothers and Sisters, and Dirty Sexy Money. Liz Tigelar's first series as a creator was the CW's Life Unexpected, and she has gone on to work as writer and producer on shows including Bates Motel, Nashville, and Casual. Her new show is Hulu's star-studded adaptation of Celeste Ng's bestseller, Little Fires Everywhere. Welcome to the show, Liz. Thank you. So... As we understand, development on this began with Reese and her producing partner finding it and then bringing in Carrie and then they went out to writers. So talk about sort of how they found you and what those early meetings were like. Well, so I had a meeting with Hello Sunshine because which I is re- Reese's company, which is Reese's company. Exactly. Because I really wanted to write on the morning show and I had had a general meeting kind of with Lauren at Hello Sunshine and we just hit it off. I don't know. It was just one of those meetings where you just, I don't know, you really get along with somebody well. And she was like, you know, this would be great if morning show worked out. And she said, and if you wouldn't mind, could you give me a list of just everything you like to write? And I'm like, all right. And she's like, just anything, anything you're reading, anything you're writing, anything you're interested in. So I went home and I typed up my crazy list of things, which was, you know, I have, I have very, I, I, I don't know if I have like a tremendous range, but I have, <laughs> <laughs> but I have specific interests. And so it was like, you know, everything from kind of mountain climbing disaster novels to, I got really into reading like meth addict memoirs for a long time, which I know sounds weird, but like with a hopeful ending <laughs> and, um, everything. I had been obsessed with Tanya Harding, but I'd already done something on Tanya Harding. So I was like, not Tanya Harding, but like Tanya Harding. It's basically Tanya Harding, you know, gymnastics. I mean, literally it was a crazy list, but I did write mother daughter, like intense mother daughter relationships, you know, potentially bordering on dysfunctional. I listed like the glass castle and, you know, all these books, but I said that wild was really one of my prototypes of just combining a lot of things. I loved. It wasn't a mountain climbing disaster, but <laughs> she did lose her shoe on the Pacific Crest Trail <laughs> and it was hard and it took a lot of guts. And, um, you know, it was really like steeped in this story really about the grief of losing her mom. And so anyway, I kind of just sent this crazy list and, um, Lauren sent me back a very funny response, which was just like, I sent it to Reese. She says she has to meet you and, uh, we're definitely going to find something to do together. So that was kind of the start. And, And that was at the end of the year. And then at the beginning, right after new year's at the top of, I guess, 2018 now, she called me and she said, I'm sending you a book right now. You have 24 hours to read it. (laughs) 
and tell me if you want to do it. And if you want to do it, it's yours. And it's starring Reese and Carrie. And I mean, even before I picked it up, I was like, I should probably do that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington, it, it's pretty much sells itself yes, right there, exactly. no matter what it is. Exactly. But I started reading the book and it actually was one of those books that just, it really, you know, I connected with it on so many levels, just right from the start, based on my own life experience, based on shows that I'd done in the past and, and really based on this idea that it was, it was really a show about motherhood at a time when I still, you know, I still feel like a relatively new mom in the grand scheme of things. So it just, I mean, you probably always feel like a new mom, even when you've been doing it for like 20 years, but for me, I, I still feel very new. So, um, yeah, I, I called her back and I said I'm in. Well, in like a, so, okay, we all know that meetings in Hollywood tend to be more sort of people sitting around tables having lunches. But in my mind, there's a situation where there's a dark interrogation room with Kerry Washington <laughs> and Reese Witherspoon on one side of the table and you on the other side with a bright light in your face. Was there any sort of meeting in that vein where you had to just sort of justify yourself to those two? <laughs> I didn't. You know what? I think we met once I was interested and needed to kind of meet with the team. I think we met at Carrie's office at Simpson Street, you know, in her office. And we, I remember just like sitting on the floor, kind of scarfing down lunch as we were all meeting and, you know, telling crazy stories. And of course, when I left the meeting, I, I thought, you know, I hope I didn't scare them off with being myself. But, um, it, it was okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess I don't think I did. Or if Appar I did, they, Apparently they, not. <laughs> they let it go. But that was fun. So you're signed on to the project. It's Reese and Carrie and this great novel mm -hmm. all being packaged together. And from my reporting, this was taken out in a very unconventional way. Usually when packages like this with stars and producers and writers already attached it becomes you guys going to, to visit all these potential buyers, Netflix. You go drive to Netflix or HBO and you go drive there, et cetera. Oh, yeah. This was the, not that. This was yes. the opposite. The, yes. This was, I mean, I'm used to crazy pitches where you drive all over town for two weeks and, you know, you know, sometimes I remember pitching with Warner Brothers and they always make you have a poster board that you go around with. And so I just remember, I don't know, it was during like the Santa Ana winds and I was pitching this book, Swamplandia, which was a wonderful book about an alligator, you know, about an whatever it had a lot to do with alligators. And um, <laughs> I just remember it was like me and Barry Sonnenfeld and this alligator poster. And I'm just like going all over town and I'm like, they're just going to see me like fly across LA being carried like, I don't know, by, a poster with an alligator. by the Swamplandia poster. And I'll never be seen again. Like I felt like I was just like fighting the elements. And so I'm, I'm used to, I mean, that's really as hard as it gets for a writer, but I, I you know, I'm used to some treacherous, you know, the 405 traffic, the alligator poster pitching. And this was, we sat at Hello Sunshine. The meeting started at a very like civilized time of 10 AM and one after another, every single person came to us. It was it was crazy. And it was actually really funny that because I was so sick. I had like a horrible cold or the flu or something. Anyway, I was so sick. And I'm like, how am I going to? And you know, when you're like sweaty and freezing at the same time, like I was like, somehow I'm so cold, yet I'm like, cannot stop sweating. And I also have a lot of energy when I pitch. So I already get kind of like hot and overheated and red faced. So I'm like, oh no. And um, I walk in. And Lauren is like, you're not sick, are you? And I'm like, oh, sorry. She's like, 
Reese won't want to sit next to you if you're sick. She has to go on tour for, she has to do a PR tour for Wrinkle in Time. Like she cannot get sick. And I'm like, I don't even think I'm really sick. I was like, I think it's more like an allergy. Maybe I'm just nervous. Anyway, I was trying to talk myself out of being sick. And um, I tried to pull it together. And I remember Reese walked in the room and I go, hey. And she goes, are you sick? And I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, yes, I'm sorry, I'm sick. Um, so I was happy to not be driving around, but I just sat there and, you know, sweat and and did what I had to do, which was really not much because they really sold it themselves. So how many outlets came through? I mean, and that's, like I said, it's, it's unheard of it, where it was almost as if you guys, Reese Witherspoon's company, and obviously with Carrie and you yeah. attached everyone collectively, you were auditioning potential outlets instead of the other way around, which yeah. can you talk a little little bit about a what that dynamic was like for you and to be part of that and b who came through what was why hulu well so the first part of the question was yes it was completely different to be on the opposite side of it i mean i've never had an experience like that and usually like i'm going in i've never even heard of an experience I, like that. no i mean and i've been I doing this for 10 years i hadn't either i was like what's happening um you know they came in and for me it just i think it just took the pressure off so much i mean my biggest stress in the pitch was not to like start crying at the end of it when I got to the end because I felt so emotional about it and connected to it. And I was like, don't cry. You, like you already almost scared them in the meeting. Now, like, don't cry in the pitch. Like, you know, I'm like, pull it together, sister. But um, but it definitely was a different feeling. I mean, it was it was less trying to sell it so hard, even though I certainly was trying to do that. But it was really more like a conversation of also hearing what do they want to do with it and kind of what are their hopes for it? And so, yeah, it was so, um, it was so nice. I don't know if I'll have that experience ever again, but I'm certainly glad I got to experience it. And so how many people, how many potential buyers came through? Like, can you name any of the other places who wanted, who had interest in picking it up and picking up the show? Well, I mean, we pitched it to Netflix, Showtime, HBO, Hulu, Amazon, and Apple. So all the big players. Yeah. Everyone the in town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The usual, yeah. usual suspects. And I if I'm remembering correctly, I think I think maybe five out of six came through. And I think we kind of whittled it down to three and then really just had conversations. And for me, I will say, even though I felt very connected to people at other places and you know, you always feel sad when you have to pick one place. I mean, not like I have this happen all the time in other aspects of my life. You feel sad if you can't say yes to everybody. But at the time, you know, and and still because of this, I've had such a long standing relationship with Hulu. I've had such a wonderful experience with Hulu. I've been there since not Hulu's beginning, but you know, I started on casual there uh, with them on casual. And um, I just... I personally love the vibe of Hulu. Now, I don't mean by any means that this decision came down to me, but I was thrilled about it. And I think the fact that I had always had such a positive experience um, from the notes process really through PR and marketing. And I felt like PR and marketing was definitely a place where I feel like Hulu really stands out as exceptional. And at the time, you know, they were coming off this amazing launch of Handmaid's Tale. And I think it just felt like for a lot of reasons, the right fit. Yeah. Um, and I was thrilled because, 
you know, I, like I said, I would, I would do everything with Hulu. Yeah, it's like going home again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's their, they're fun. I think the thing about Hulu is that they feel like fans. And when they came in, they were actually our last pitch and they did it kind of like a book club. It was all these women. They all had their like dog-eared copies of their books and there was wine and I think like, you know, cheese. And I'm like, all right, this is, this is my style. That, that, that's my kind of meeting. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, since we're talking about Hulu, you know, they've had a lot of executive turnover, for lack of a better word, in the last couple of years. Joel Stillerman came and went. Randy Freer just, you know, that was just announced that he's leaving for Amazon. Given all of those changes, is it still the same Hulu from when you worked there with Casual? Is it still largely the same development team? Is it, did it feel like from that, that sense of familiarity? Absolutely. I mean, you know, for me, my relationship there has always been with Beatrice and Beatrice Springborn. Exactly. Yes. And um, that's been consistent the whole way through. So when I know my collaboration is with her or with people underneath her, it's the same experience for me. And then also in terms of, you know, PR over there. I have a great relationship with Barry Gruner and in marketing and it just, and Candace Ashton, and they're just all people who are very, um, familial and, and like family to me and to my family. And so there's just an aspect of it that feels like working with friends, working with people that you care about even outside of work. And, and both have been there for a very long time, both e extremely great at their jobs. Yeah. And so it just has this feeling of comfort. And I think of, of knowing them and being known. And it really transcends work in a lot of ways. Now, I want to go back to the, the 24 hours that you had to read the book in the first place. What did you immediately respond to? And as you were going through the book on the first read, what did you realize that you were going to have to or want to tweak and twist to bring it to TV? Well, in terms of what I responded to, I think, you know, it's an intense mother-daughter story. There are lots of mothers and lots of daughters. And I think it's also a story about how, and I think everybody probably does this at certain points in their life, this coveting of other mothers and this coveting of the family that you don't have and the idea that you could explore what it would be like to experience this. That was, that's something, I'm an adopted kid. That's something I, I don't know if everybody does that or if it's, um, or if adopted kids do it even more, but I think it's something I've always felt in my life. And, you know, of course you can, you can look at other families or even covet other mothers. And often it can do one of two things. It can, it can show you kind of a mother that you long to have, or it can make you reflect back and look at your own mother with a new understanding and appreciate what you have, which of course, in my personal case, the, the second is, is my experience. But, um, I, I just really related to that in the book. And I think there's a part of the book, you know, I was reading it and a hundred pages in, I'm like, I want to do this. But once I got to the end of the book, which I don't think it's spoiling anything because it's the book and it's been out there. So spoiler um, alert, if you haven't read the book and you want to watch the show, <laughs> Here's your warning. Yeah, there's just there's just a moment where one character has left and she has this longing and this wish that another character would find her and kind of take her as her own. And when I got to that point in the book, it was this it was this feeling of this character 
who desperately didn't want to be left behind. And I was laying down reading it and I realized after I read it, like, it's like when you're reading and like the tips of your hair are wet because you're like, you guys don't have this, but you like, you know, you're like, or like maybe your neck, like you've just been sobbing and you kind of didn't even realize it because you didn't feel like you were crying. And that's how I felt when I got to that point in the book. And it just, I don't know, it like hit my heart in such a visceral way. And so I think those were the points in the book. And the book is a lot about family, mothers, who's a deserving mother, surrogacy, you know, all adoption, all kinds of things. And so those are all things certainly in my own recent life that have been, you know, at the forefront of my mind. And so those are the ways I really connected to it. In terms of what I would change, you know, Carrie Washington cast herself in this as Mia. And in the book, Mia's race is not indicated and um, neither is Pearl's. And so once you know that this character is a black female artist, it naturally is going to change how you approach the character because you're going to be approaching the character through that specific lens. So that was something I was thinking about as I was reading. But I think even all the ways that that would inform and tweak and, and even deepen the story weren't evident to me just at first glance. And there were things kind of at first glance that were more evident. There were ways that I knew I wanted the teenage characters to have even more of an arc or, you know, things like that. Um, I wanted to give Bill, Reese's husband, you know, even more of an arc and more to do. There were certain... Josh Jackson. Josh Jackson, of course. This is our first first of what will be many Dawson's (laughs) Dawson's Creek references. references. Uh, I love it. Um, And so there were things like that for sure. And I knew that I wanted to find ways to interconnect plot beats even more so that the momentum and and plot and mystery would really drive the story. Well, it's funny because the show is so much about the binaries between these two families and the racial binary makes so much sense. When you talk to the author of the book, was her response, well, yeah, of course that makes sense. You know, go ahead and do that. Was there anything like that? She was, I mean, she was, Celeste was very excited about Carrie and very supportive of, you know, how that would kind of transform the story. And I think she had her own reasons for kind of leaving it ambiguous. And my guess is that she left the parts ambiguous where maybe she didn't think she was necessarily the one to tell that specific story. So the benefit here is, you know, neither am I, but I am able to open it up to an entire room and I'm able to to put together a room that will be the room to tell, the writer's room to tell that certain story. And talk a bit about the period because it's set in 1997 and, yeah. you know, you can, you can treat period in many different ways. It can be, oh, look, lots of kitschy soundtrack mm-hmm. choices. But I was interested particularly in the way that the Bill Clinton narrative is woven through the background and, you know, what people do and do not believe about him, what yeah. they do and don't believe about Paula Jones, what they do and don't believe about Anita Hill. It's it's all kind of yeah. wrapped up in it. How foregrounded did you want that to be and how much did you just want that to be a little spice in kind of the background? Yeah, I think we I mean, I think we definitely wanted it to be background color, you know, in terms of if Elena's working on a story, why couldn't it be about that? If people are debating in the way, you know, we would debate certain things today, politics, you know, that's what we talk about today. Politics is still going to be at the forefront of their conversations, especially, you know, we have a later scene where it's two journalists kind of bantering and that there are, you know, they're arguing about Clinton, they're arguing about Paula Jones, they're talking about Anita Hill, all these things. So we wanted it to 
kind of operate the same way it operates currently in our lives. And then, of course, there are, you know, a lot of the people who worked on the show, women, you know, mostly women, we are all kind of, I mean, I hate to say it, but middle-aged women who came of age in the 90s and we're all obsessed with the 90s. We love it because that's when we were, you know, teens. And so everybody kind of has their own take on the 90s and their own things that they remember in such a visceral way. So we tried to really incorporate those things, you know, whether it's the music, but, but yeah, just the, the Alanis Morissette, not sorry to interrupt, oh, yeah, but yeah, the yeah. Alanis Morissette uh, song in yep. the trailer is, I'm like, where do I buy that? Oh my it's God. I great. know. I know. I know. It's so good. It's so great. And that was, you know, there's more Alanis and they're just, when we all had that, it was the music in some ways was the most challenging part of post because I think everybody had an opinion because we all are like so connected to the songs we love from the 90s and I I just remember um but but, you know we also the 90s were so musically diverse and so and a lot of you know a lot of hits and a lot of misses and so we wanted to kind of uh, have the whole spectrum so that was fun but even the details of like you know you know, I wanted to put a character in Tevas because like I remember buying Tevas in the 90s and being thinking I could not love these shoes anymore. I remember being like, if I had to date my boyfriend or have my Tevas and I could only have one, I'd pick my Tevas <laughs> at the time. That was a quote. That was a quote in There's Spanish. a lot more to that discussion. Yeah, there's like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. exactly right. <laughs> That might not have been only about how great the Tevas were. <laughs> they were very fine sandals, let's be honest. Let's, but... You know what? They're comf- you could hike the Pacific Crest Trail in those totally. Tevas. <laughs> you could, you could, you could, you could try, you could pitch in LA. You could really hold the poster and could, feel yeah, like your well, feet were planted to the ground. You won't sail away with an alligator parachute, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, l- let's talk about Reese and Carrie for a second here. Obviously, now they're not just starring, but they're exec producing, and they both are very connected to this material having packaged it themselves, but what did they bring when you're in your discussions with them? You know, can you think back to one or two things that each may have brought to the table about this is the one thing that I want, I really want to explore, or this is the one change or the note that they gave that really rings true that, that kind of exemplifies who they are as producers too. I mean, it probably is hard to pick one thing because I feel like in such a macro way, I mean, this show would obviously it wouldn't be the show it is without them having inhabited these roles, but really it wouldn't be what it was without them being the producers on it. Because I feel like they, I mean, first of all, they have such a true, truthful collaboration. I think, you know, of course you do things with people and you collaborate and you kind of put out there that it's been a good experience. The two of them, their friendship is just so genuine and their mutual respect for each other is so genuine. I feel like they come, you know, they, they come to the project as, um, also as moms. Um, and so there's just, there's a lot of connectivity points for them. And I think there are a lot together and you just, I think that's what I felt from the very start was these are two people who really love each other. And it was exciting to get to kind of come into that fold, I guess, and to be a part of that. And, and, and people who they're both such great listeners to each other and to the people they collaborate with. And so I feel like we had a lot of conversations and they both really, I mean, everything from 
the way Carrie even fundamentally approached Mia, she really drew on her own life experience from. Um, she talked about herself being a pearl and her mom being more of a Mia in terms of how she operates in the world. And I that was that was probably the first big note I got from Carrie that really started to shape how I was approaching Mia because I think I felt Mia transformed from the book and. I wrote her and then she even transformed again from the writing or in stages of writing into the way Carrie was going to inhabit her. So that I felt like was a really specific, exciting collaboration. And then with Reese, you know, Reese talked a lot about what it was like to have teenagers and how teenagers felt in the house. And she was, you know, she wasn't solely focused on her character. She was very broadly focused kind of on this whole group and how they were going to feel real. So whether it was in blocking of like, people don't stand there, like teenage boys are picking each other up. They're throwing things at each other. They're pulling down each other's pants. They're making stupid jokes. They're causing chaos and all these things. She wanted to bring this real authenticity to them. And I think that was something that was great too. But the whole way along, to be honest, I mean, we collaborated obviously in an in-depth way on every script. You know, they were each the wonderful keepers of their characters. And I think Reese, Reese's notes were very invaluable later in the process, especially when Elena kind of unravels completely and looking at how can we have this woman unravel? How can we have her do some pretty despicable things that she does in the book? And how can we still understand her and be on her side and not make her the villain? And I think that was what was so fun to write. And in terms of, you know, I think I've been on a lot of shows where the relationships between women can be binary. You know, they love each other. They hate each other. She's young. She's old. You know, whatever. And this was, it was so fun to write such a, I hope, a complex relationship between two women that felt like they both were kind of you know, not obviously romantically, but there was an attraction to each other, almost a magnetic kind of attraction and repulsion at the same time. And when you look at shows that that do that in a sophisticated way, Killing Eve, you know, you look at these shows that are doing it so well. Killing Eve was something we referenced in the room a lot to kind of look over at that show with a lot of respect to the way that they were telling a story between these two women. I, I like the way that you put that in terms of when she's unraveling and you don't want her to be the villain and you talked about how we sympathize with her but not the unfortunate word that gets thrown away much around much more which is likability and i i don't get the feeling watching this that you were thinking about well we're gonna make her likable but it, talk about the difference between likability and sympathizable yeah exactly i mean i think that likability you're right it's a word that gets thrown about so often and i think we really tried not to use that in the room and tried not to use that word as any kind of North Star. Be, uh, instead, it's, I think what it really w was, was that we were trying in both Elena and Mia to think that we could see glimpses of ourselves in them. And I think that that is very different than likability. I mean, it's obviously relatability and it's accessibility, but it's not necessarily likability. And 
what I love about Reese in this role and Carrie, I mean, both of them, I feel like really transform themselves, but where Reese goes at the end, I don't think it's a place that we've seen her before. I mean, really, she's there in the beginning because it's a flash forward. <laughs> so I guess where she starts and where she catches back up to, it's not a version of Reese for me that I have seen before. And it's just very unmasked and very raw. Now, we promised you we were going to talk a lot about Dawson's Creek, and, and so far we haven't. Is this going to be about Josh Jackson and his tidy whities I was not going to. No, that was not, that, was, that was not exactly. Okay. It was going to be about half of that, and then if you want to transition it into that, that's fine. And I just want to clarify before we get going, in case I haven't said this in one of our previous you know, 60 plus episodes. I am a massive Dawson's Creek fan, like <laughs> hardcore. Like my first job out of college, I worked at the LA Daily News. I was a copy editor. I worked nights. I had to work Saturdays at a baseball card shop. So my boss said, pick one weekday night off and that's what you get. And I picked Wednesdays because that's when Dawson's Creek was on. Oh my God. So that is the depths of my fandom. So I love it. Go on, Dan. I love it. So so the the way I was going to transition and then you can transition it to tidy whities if you want <laughs> is, OK, you've got, you know, you've got Reese and Carrie there. But when you're talking about casting Reese's husband, did you immediately go, well, it's got to be Pacey? It, I mean, it, it seems obvious, you know, casting directors kind of put together lists and we have kind of our dream, you know, these dream names. And yeah, when we saw the list, it was like Josh Jackson, like we should go out to Josh Jackson first. And, uh, we did. And I was so excited that he was going to do it. I mean, obviously, you know, I was, uh, you know, worked my way up as kind of an assistant on Dawson's and that was my first job. And I was so excited to think like, oh, I'm I'm getting reunited with Pacey. Of course, I knew him much better than he knew me, which was basically not at all. But <laughs> um, I was very excited about it. And then it was odd being on set, looking across at Josh Jackson and thinking, oh, we're like older now. <laughs> like, like, I'm like, you're older, which means... I'm older. And this is, I don't know, this feels a little bittersweet. But he was wonderful. And I will say he brought so much to that character too. Bill was one of our kind of harder characters, I think, to just know exactly in what ways we should deepen him and, and, and what we should exactly do with his story. And I think what Josh really resonated with and then kind of challenged me to bring out more, which I really liked doing, was was talking about the compromises that you make in a marriage without even ever talking about it and how those kind of resentments build up and how you get to a point 20 years later where you've made these choices and you've made these compromises and you might be looking at them differently kind of in hindsight. But, um, but yeah. And, and so anyway, he, he brought a lot to that, including his tidy whities because he felt very strongly that Bill would wear an undershirt and tidy whities to bed, which P.S., if my dad had come to this podcast today, as he planned, he could attest to that this was a typical dad outfit, I would say probably from the 70s to early aughts. And uh, it was, it was, the whole crew burst out laughing. And I have to say, when you watch it, it's a little graphic, a little graphic. Well, shifting, a lot. Sh shifting from that, you know, look, having started on, on a show like Dawson's Creek, you know, that writer's room and yeah. I'll let you, li you know, yeah, list yeah, the, yeah. the roster of all stars. But that was the first show that Greg Berlanti wound up running um, after Kevin yes. Williamson. Yeah. And he was a staff writer when when I was a PA. But to kind of come up through that room and like look at some of I mean, who 
the number of, of great writers who, who came out of yeah. there. We were rattling this off the other day. Oh, yeah. Um, Mike White, obviously Kevin, Greg, Ruben Fleischer and I were PAs together. I mean, Dana Barada, Jenny Bix, John Feldman. Um, All prolific show Rob Thomas. I mean, it was crazy. Gina Fattori, Rena Mamoon, Anna Fricky. It's amazing. Every single person you just named is either a showrunner or a high profile feature director. Yeah. Um, but to kind of come up in, in that room and, and to have been, you know, working with Greg at, at that time for you as a young writer coming up, what was it like looking back on that process and that that time? What was that like for you? Like what what were some of the big takeaways that, that you got from that? Like, is there something yeah. that you learned from that process that you still implement today now that you are a showrunner? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, Dawson's was, it was its own time capsule. And I think, you know, a lot of us were kind of young and starting out on that show. And it, it feels like, I mean, it feels like having been at summer camp, like nonstop for three years and, or like a really awful Thanksgiving dinner. That's also really great. And everyone's really drunk, but they're also fun. Um, it was, it was just, I don't know. It was, it was an experience. And so I think from a writing standpoint, yeah, I mean, I think of, you know, I think of Greg, I, I think of watching him come in and what he did with that show. And just even whenever you're stumped in the room, you know, I, Greg would be like, what if the thing that happens at the end of the episode happens in, at the end of act one? Like, what if that launches our episode? He would always say, like, don't be afraid to move things up. Don't hold on to story. Like, move it up, move it up. You're not saving it. You're not saving money. Like, spend it now. And I think that that was something that was really incredible to watch. And I think, um, I think being on something that was so, like, careening up at such a momentum at that time was so exciting. And then I think also, you know, I, I also learned a lot about it in terms of work, you know, it was a different time, but in terms of work environments and what's acceptable and what's appropriate. And, you know, I think that I, I learned both good and bad from that show, you know? Um, but I will say that my, some of my closest writer friends. I mean, Anna Fricky, Gina Fattori, and Rena Mamoon, and then Lisa Zwirling, who didn't work on Dawson's, but, you know, sentimentally did. Um, she was a doctor at the time. <laughs> she then transitioned into writing on ER. But um, we are still a very tight-knit group from that show, and it's just a really tight-knit group of women, and we have a showrunner text chain, and when any of us has a question that we don't want to ask on our show, we ask each other, and we get each other's feedback, and we're like our own little, you know, Dawson support group that I think, you know, stemmed from kind of being in the trenches on that show together. I can't think of a better first job, and when I think about that show, I just laugh, you know? I would have given all of my baseball card collection to be in that writer's room. That's saying a lot. To, to see it that so, and that is saying a lot, yeah. And Mike um, White, I will say Mike White was the most fun, like most fun to be around, made it the best environment. He always treated, you know, I was an assistant when he was there and he always just, he always treated everybody with uh, like as total equals. And I just remember, um, I don't know, just loving him so much. And he went and did Chuck and Buck, you know, Greg did Broken Hearts Club. Like at the same time, everyone was doing, you know, they were doing their movies. It was, I mean, it was exciting. And if you haven't seen Broken Hearts Club, it's Greg Berlanti's first feature. Julie Pluck worked on it. It is one of my top 10 favorite movies of 
all time. The boyfriend who I preferred my Tevas over is an extra in Broken Hearts Club. Just putting it out there. <laughs> I bet you that boyfriend did not expect to be mentioned yeah, no. multiple times in this podcast. Um, you know, let, let's you know. Obviously, every time we talk about Greg, we always talk about his twenty-two scripted shows and counting right now. But you just signed a big overall deal with ABC Studios and uh, news broke in February that you are teaming with legendary author Judy Bloom on a Summer Sisters limited series. You know, obviously you're going from one limited series with Little Fires to to an, to another one. A, how much development are you looking to do in terms of do you want to be a Berlanti where you're juggling multiple projects at once? Or are you more of kind of the, the Vince Gilligan one show at a time type? Um, I would love to be either one of them. <laughs> but I, I think I just I mean, honestly, I just want to do Little Fires. You know, the, the two shows I've had on the air that have been my, you know, my own, I guess, although, you know, both comprised of many other people, more important than me, were Life Unexpected and Little Fires. And for me, those are exactly the types of shows that I would want to be associated with. That's that's like, those are me in a nutshell. It feels good that those are the shows that I get to have my name on. I feel so lucky and fortunate about it. And I think I just want to keep doing things that I feel that kind of just passionate and excited about. It's, you know, you can have your name on a lot of things. And of course I, I do as a writer and I'm grateful for those things too. But but when you're talking about what you have control of putting out into the world, and especially now kind of, you know, post 2016, I think, um, I think I really just feel passionately about putting stuff out that I think is saying something good. Yeah. Now, when you have that first meeting with Judy Bloom, what is the book that you say changed your life? <laughs> well, so Judy is an interesting story. I call her Judy. Um, <laughs> Judy's an interesting story because I actually wrote her a letter 20 years ago asking if I could adapt Summer Sisters. Um, and I knew I obviously wasn't even yet really a writer and barely had the experience. And so I had like had all these ideas of maybe who could do it with us so that she would feel comfortable. But I had written, you know, this lengthy letter about how much I loved the book and, and what it meant to me back when I read it um, in 98. And so, um, wait, I don't even know what question I'm answering. <laughs> about Judy Bloom. <laughs> what, what is the, what is the, com how does, how do you oh, begin? How does the start? Oh, and and does she, does she remember the letter slash does she start? Okay, I don't know that she ever got the letter. <laughs> WME was supposed to send it. They were my agents at the time. They were Endeavor. I don't know. I, they may or may not have sent the letter. But... Also, I get the feeling probably that she's gotten a few fan letters exactly, from young women exactly. who, who yeah. felt In moved the, by her million. books. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know that she ever got the letter, but I found the letter on an old hard drive that, you know, of course, like the plug didn't plug into the other plug anymore. So I had to go get it. Like, I don't know how I got it <laughs> off. I mean, someone helped me, but, um, but I found the letter and, um, I rewrote her a letter saying, I have this other letter. I just want to prove to you that I've been trying to write you for 20 years. And so, um, it's actually, yes, it was, it's actually kind of a crazy story, but I went through some ups and downs with it because I thought somebody else had it, it actually happened at Caroline Dries's wedding. Julie Pleck told me somebody else had it and I almost threw the table and I was like, Oh no. And then, and she was like, but I told Judy about you. And thank you. And she's like, but I think someone else has it. And I'm like, ah. so I went through these like highs and lows of ups and downs of texting Larry Sals, my agent and being like, what's happening. I'm going on an emotional 
roller coaster. Like, forget it. And then, but this um, is all you also just described, <laughs> like the battle for IP in this peak TV yes, era. Exactly. Like, it, yes, exactly. That is what yes. it's like. I was out at there. a wedding. I was at a wedding, and I was still losing my mind. And um, and anyway, so finally, so then randomly, I was with another friend, Christy Smith, who's a manager, and I was in despair about Judy Bloom, and she said. Oh, I have a call into Jill Gillette, her agent. Do you want me to mention it? I'm like, oh my God, we're back. <laughs> and so literally two days later, I was having breakfast with Judy Bloom. I'm like, Christy Smith, got it done. Um, it was amazing. So yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot of ups and downs. And then of course, when we were having lunch, we like checked in. And, you know, I was like, table of Judy Bloom, and the guy's like, <laughs> You know, he's like young, millennial. And no I'm idea like, who that is. I'm like, I just said Judy Bloom. I'm like, <laughs> show some respect. Um, <laughs> I'm like the Judy Bloom. But anyway, she's and she's amazing. And she's so, um, you know, she's she's finally opened up her catalog and is, ex- is excited to have it, I think, out there. So you're adapting that as a limited series. Yes. Little Fires is a limited series. Yes. Two-part question. I love a limited series. Uh, clearly. <laughs> but is that what the appeal is? It is that it's one and done, you get to move on. And then secondly, and because, and we can all thank Big Little Lies for this, but should Little Fires catch on, is there, you know, bigger fires yeah. as a sequel, you know? <laughs> um, I'd love Little Fires to stay. I mean, I, Little Fires is a limited series. That to me is a perfect one season show. It We span the book. We tell their story. I think... Um, I think it would compromise something to to kind of try to make it something it's not. So to me, it's the perfect limited series, and it kind of encapsulates what a limited series should be. Um, there's a huge appeal. To me, there's a huge appeal just because you get to tell a bigger story, but you don't have to tell a story that never ends. I mean, the idea that obviously everyone does it, but just saying like, let's tell a story that never has an ending ever, but then has the most abrupt ending ever because you just got canceled. It's such a weird construct. It is. Um, You know what I mean? It's like just something with endless stories that could end at any minute without notice. It's, It's a tough, it's a tough construct. So this... This feels, it's very civilized. It's like, we know there's a beginning, middle, and end. We know where it starts. We know where it ends. We know how many episodes. It's doable. You can not kill yourself doing it. Like, it all Actors just feels... Actors like Carrie Washington and Reese Witherspoon can want film to multiple attach. projects and want to do it because it's less, it's only a fraction of their year. Exactly. Yeah. And it just feels like, um, yeah, I don't know. It feels humane to me. <laughs> And then our standard final question, uh, what are you watching and loving these days? Oh, man. Okay. Well, I feel like I never watch anything because I'm always working. But um, recently, we did actually watch Cheer. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I'm obsessed with it. Obviously, everybody is. It was amazing. I could not get enough of it. And I will say... I'm a lone holdout on Survivor. I know. I'm, I, I'm, I, not, I, I'm not there with you. We can... I love Survivor. I'm so into it. I'm sad about Amber. Um, I, but thanks to Edge of Extinction, <laughs> it all just goes on. No one know, goes home anymore. I know. You know what? I know. So. That's what I said. I was like, you know what? She's not She's not out. She's just, this isn't goodbye. It's see you later. And she um, also made it clear that she that she only did this because she knew that you know no one was actually going home. Exactly. So. Exactly. <laughs> so it's all okay. But anyway, Survivor, I still love Survivor. And actually, it's funny going back to Dawson's Creek. 
Survivor premiered opposite Dawson's Creek. And we would all secretly watch Survivor instead of Dawson's Creek. And then we started playing Office Survivor. And I remember us voting someone out because she wouldn't let us order alcohol from Gil Turner's, like the liquor store down the street. And we're like, well, she's out. And it, was like, it, got, very cr- it got a little cruel. But yeah, we played Office Survivor a lot. And so it's hard to believe. I think that was like 2000. And before we sign off, just because I have to, Team Pacey or Team Dawson? Oh, Oof. <laughs> I mean, Pacey. Sorry. Uh, you know, I've always been Team Dawson. Always, always, always. Because I'm a hopeless romantic like that character. And every, you know, I, I rewatch that whole series every now and again. And as I get older, I, I'm, I'm slowly becoming Team Pacey. And it hurts my soul to see it a little bit. You know what? I, I might be Team Jack. I love a curse yeah. Smith. Oh, yeah. I love a curse Smith. You know, yeah. Team Jack, or maybe I'll just do I choose me. Joey, exactly. <laughs> Joey should have chosen herself. That's right. That's I, I choose me. me. All right, well, we're digressing me. here. I choose me. <laughs> Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Oh my God, thank you guys. <laughs> thank you. The first three episodes of Little Fires Everywhere are now streaming on Hulu, with subsequent installments bowing weekly. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. This week's new launches include Feel Good. Tiger King and Self-Made, inspired by the life of Madam C.J. Walker, all on Netflix. Pops revived One Day at a Time returns for its first season on the network after Netflix's very rude cancellation. And we should note One Day at a Time is among the shows that have had production affected by the coronavirus. Also premiering this week, Freeform's Motherland, Fort Salem, and NBC's latest This Is Us wannabe, Council of Dads. Dan, first, before you get into any kind of what people should binge during their quarantine, what are the new shows is worth checking out? Well, uh, I think there's a lot of variety in the things that are premiering this week. Whether or not things are necessarily great is something else. Uh, Freeform's Motherland Fort Salem, for example, premiered this week, Wednesday, I guess, maybe Thursday. Who can keep up with things anymore? Uh, I watched multiple episodes of this show. It is about... An alter, it is an alternate history in which witches have become a part of the military framework of our country, and there's a witching military academy, and it is astonishingly ludicrous and yet takes itself astonishingly seriously, which I admire in a borderline perverse way. Uh, you know, this is the kind of premise where you can imagine someone being like, ooh, let's take a kind of cheeky Buffy style look at this where we wink and nudge at the absurdity of the situations. No, man, this is a show that takes military witches hella seriously. It is crazy into the seriousness of its premise. And I kind of enjoy that, even though I would say probably on an empirical level, the show is kind of bad. But, you know, sometimes you have to marvel at the things that people take seriously. Now, as for actual shows that are either currently out and new or coming out, I really enjoyed Feel Good. It is on Netflix. It is created by Mae Martin, who is a Canadian stand-up comic and writer. And she plays not herself, but a version of herself because she's playing a Canadian stand-up comic named May, who falls in love with a woman she meets at the comedy club. The woman has never been in a lesbian relationship before, and that produces some amount of tension. But there's even more tension because May has an addiction background and even darker things in her past. 
things get bumpy. I, in my review, compared it to Amazon's Catastrophe. Catastrophe is a show that if you haven't watched, you should definitely be checking out Catastrophe because it's a wonderful show. I don't think this is quite... I feel like you're subtweeting me because I haven't watched Catastrophe either. Oh, I'm subtweeting you on many things, but really you should be watching Brockmire. That is the thing, first and foremost, that I will tell you a thousand times you need to be watching. But anyway, back to Feel Good. Mae Martin, while she is not an actress, is actually a really, really good actress. And the show is only six episodes. They're all 25 minutes or less, give or take. And it's that sort of genre-bending British show that we've become accustomed to in the catastrophe, fleabag, etc. mode. It's not always laugh out loud funny, but I think it's a really good show. Sticking with Netflix, I think a lot of people are going to dig the documentary series Tiger King, which is a true life but almost impossible to believe story of the people who own and raise big cats in captivity. So your basic leopards, panthers, tigers, ligers, etc. It also brings in a little murder for hire, some strange polygamy. It is seven episodes. Each episode is a little bit more unbelievable than the one that came before. I, I don't know that it holds together all that well, but it sure as hell keeps you watching. You mentioned Council of Dads. That is the latest NBC strange attempt to do a one-off premiere, put the show on the shelf, build momentum in ways that I don't understand, and then bring the show back for real in late April. So its pilot is airing next week, but then the show comes back on April 30th. Yeah, well, they're using This Is Us to kind of sample it. So that that makes sense because that's the audience that they're hoping to tune in for. Which you, you have to... At least as far as I understand. No, no, and you, and you have to try. And it, it hasn't not worked on Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which had a weird rollout. But I get the sense some people are watching that show, which I think is a much better show than Council of Dads. Uh, Council of Dads is, as you say, the latest attempt to channel the success of This Is Us. Uh, I would also describe it as the latest effort to from NBC to weaponize lacrimosity, as I like to put it. Uh, I would describe this as better and less cloyingly manipulative than The Village from last year, but still really, really, really cloyingly manipulative. And so far, I've only seen one episode, and it is... Basically a premise pilot. It's all here's how we're setting up this story, which is about a guy dying of cancer who tries to get his best friends to form a council of dads to help raise his children. And it is every bit as manipulative as that sounds. But I have no clue what the actual series is because the pilot is a very, very, very particular thing set over the course of a year, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't like feeling as if you're watching puppies and kittens being strangled for the sole purpose of making you sob. This is not, by the way, something that literally happens in the show, though it does kind of happen in Tiger King. Anyway, just saying, this is not a show for you. This this is a show that makes This Is Us look subtle, and This Is Us is not a subtle show. But if you are feeling in this moment like you need some sort of emotional catharsis and you want to cry about something that isn't what's happening in the real world, I guess that is a thing you can watch. Not a hugely enthusiastic endorsement from me, but Tiger King is a thing you should watch and Feel Good is a thing you should watch. And if you're Leslie Goldberg, Brockmire is a thing you can watch. All first three seasons are available on Hulu and the fourth season just premiered this week on IFC. Brockmire, it's a show made for Leslie, but she isn't watching it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> Loud and clear. Well, we are mid 30 Rock binge. We're on season two. My wife is rewatching it. I've never seen it. We're enjoying that. 
if you were to kind of throw out like one or two shows, Dan, for our listeners to watch to kind of get their minds off of the state of our world right now, what are your go to's when you need to pick me up? I'm there's too much TV for me to go to anything at this point. I'm yes, but you obviously <laughs> you personally have your favorite shows, I, right? I, what are some of yours that, that you would want to kind of wrap around you and to make you feel better? For me, those those are things like Friday Night Lights and Parenthood. And my wife and I watch Friends like almost nightly at this point. What about you? If you were going to recommend a binge for someone? I think that when we did our best of the decade stuff uh, back in December and I went through my best of the aught of whatever the last decade was, the ones, whatever it was, my number one show for the last decade was Parks and Recreation. And if you need uh, something that is warm and fuzzy and life affirming, that is a great show to watch. So that would be certainly a legacy show that you could binge. I think that if you haven't, for example, watched Better Things, Better Things is a show that is all about family and all about holding it together when the world seems to be falling apart on a sort of intimate family level, you know, in the way that disagreements can feel like the world falling apart, not in the way that looking at your TV today feels like it. It is such a big-hearted show. Uh, if you listen to last week's podcast, we had a terrific interview with that show's uh, creator, director, writer, star, Pamela Adlon, and it was a great interview. And it, it's just such a good show. And then there are just all of the various hyper-involving shows that you could just get lost in for 20, 30, 40 hours at a time. So it's a lot of the shows that I recommend constantly to people, whether it's something like The Leftovers or Halt and Catch Fire or all of the big things. You know, if you are someone out there who for some reason has not had the time to watch The Wire, why not settle in and watch The Wire, for heaven's sakes? Is this a bad time to admit that I've never seen or finished The Wire? Ah. I'm, I've, I have it. I've watched like two or three episodes of season one, but it was just one of those things where life got busy. <laughs> I'm also going to recommend, before you can make fun of me for that, um, I'm also going to recommend Happy Endings and a show that's very close to my heart, Freaks and Geeks, which is something I binged 18 hours of in one weekend after probably one of the worst breakups in my life. And that made me feel normal again. My so-called life remains one of my other favorite one and dones. And then for me, I'm a ridiculous Dawson's Creek addict, so which you just heard in our interview with Liz Tiglar. Um I do a rewatch every couple of years. That's a good one for me. So, yeah, those, those are my go to. No, great, great TV is always great to watch. So if that's Freaks and Geeks, if that's Undeclared, those are great TV shows to watch regardless of the moment. So now is a great moment for it. Something like Friday Night Lights. If you are looking yes. for a show about the importance of community and family and teammates and big heart and working together, like all yeah. that stuff. That, I mean, that is that is a great TV show, regardless of the timing. It might be a better TV show I've seen show that now. one, Dan. Excellent. See, I've seen that one. I walked down the aisle to the theme song at my wedding, Dan. I, Do I get points for not having seen The Wire now? No, those are two totally different. Does this values. like help offset? No, no okay. those are two totally we're, we're different value systems. And I can feel happy that you've seen one while also feeling sad you haven't seen the other. But seriously, Brockmeyer. Anyway, we will we will continue to offer up things for you to watch on a weekly basis because there still is a lot of good TV, both currently still airing and probably in your various streaming platform queues, etc. So we will keep giving you things to watch because... While we keep saying we are not covering the most important thing in the world right now, we are covering a thing that people look to for distraction, and we will do our best to help you.
Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We hope we will be back next week, and we will hope to be joined by one day at a time co-showrunner Gloria Calderon-Kellett via some app or another if everything works out the way we hope it will. What we're doing now is a lot of knocking on wood, but we will definitely be back in some form. And so as a result, you should subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. Uh, if you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review-y thing. We always appreciate that. Come say hi to us on Twitter. We're always happy to hear from you. Questions, comments, and concerns. I mentioned at the top of the show, we are definitely in upcoming weeks going to need mail for mailbag segments. So if you want to reach out and ask us questions of any sort, we're at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. And if you have ideas for topics or interviews that you would like to hear, let us know. I mean, we can't magically make those interviews appear, but, you know, we can do our best. We are open to ideas in this uncertain time. We are indeed. So until next week, Leslie. Stay safe and stay sane. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.